You're listening to the On the NBA Beat Podcast, a show packed with nuanced perspectives on the league's most important stories. Portland has three timeouts left. The Lakers have two. Bryant. It's a shot! LeBron James with no regard for human life! Jordan. And now, your hosts, Lauren Lee Chen and the twins, Aaron and Joshua Fishman. With only a few days left in the regular season, playoff spots are still up for grabs in both conferences, and none of the first round matchups are finalized. A team right in that playoff hunt is the Utah Jazz, whom we'll be talking about this episode with Andy Larson, a beat reporter for KSL.com, the Salt Lake City NBC affiliate. He also hosts a weekly radio show on ESPN Radio Salt Lake and is the managing editor of the website Salt City Hoops on ESPN's True Hoop Network. As you'll certainly gather from listening to this episode, Andy's a really smart guy, so much so that he skipped both the first and third grades, but then he had to repeat the fifth grade, so maybe not that smart. Hey, Andy, thanks for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me. No problem. We're recording this on Saturday afternoon. As of recording time, the Jazz hold the eighth seed in the Western playoffs hunt. They have a one-game lead over the Houston Rockets with three games to go. Usually, we tend to ask if it's even worth making the playoffs for someone who's going to be an eighth seed, especially this season going against the Golden State Warriors. But does that have more importance for a young up-and-coming team like the Jazz in terms of giving those young players experience or lending legitimacy in attracting free agents in the offseason just to say that you are a playoff team? Yeah, I, th- I think you kind of nailed both of the, the things. And ultimately, you know, obviously you hope that that playoff experience gives them some idea of how much room there is still to go, right? You know, if you do end up facing the Warriors in an eight seed, Spurs is the seven seed. Obviously, those teams are still much, much better than the Jazz. And so you kind of show the young players how much work there is left to still be a, a championship caliber team. And I think that's valuable, even if you do get swept or, or lose in five games. As you point out, I think it's helpful for free agents to see that they're a playoff team on the rise and, and can be part of something good. I look at, say, the Milwaukee Bucks and, and signing Greg Monroe last summer, and even though that didn't work out for them, and I think it was probably not the right strategic move, I don't know if Greg Monroe chooses to sign with Milwaukee if they don't make the playoffs last year. Then you look at Gordon Hayward, who can opt out of his contract next summer and, and probably will, given the rising cap. I think you have to start to put together a case of why he he should stay on the Utah Jazz. You know, I I think that starts with multiple playoff appearances. So it all kind of comes together. And and I think, you know, for the players involved, they definitely do want to make the playoffs that they're badly pushing for it. I think the front office cares a little bit less. You know, they take the long view and realize you're not a championship contender this year. One win here or there is is not going to change how you approach the team in the offseason. But obviously, they're rooting for the Jazz as well. They matched up kind of well with the Warriors, I guess, if you could say that about any team. There were two home games for Utah that they were so close to winning, and they they really should have beaten Golden State. With Gobert and the rest of that defense, they were able to get Stephen Curry out of his rhythm as much as really any one team can do. What do you make of their chances? I know that the Warriors are such a dominant team, And they just don't lose at home. But that has to be encouraging to some extent, doesn't it? 
Oh, for sure. I mean, you look at those two games, and and really both games, they're you know one shot away. And I think what's what's really interesting is they didn't need a bad shooting game from the Warriors in order to get it. You know, there was. It wasn't that like Steph Curry went three for 16 or anything or that the the Warriors only shot 20% from three. They actually shot 35 and 40% from three in both of those games. It's just the Jazz were able to lock down the inside shots and play some good switching defense on the outside. That kind of frustrated the Warriors. Now, in both games in Oakland, the Warriors ran away with it and, and didn't have any problem there. And I think that's pretty much what you would expect in a playoff series as well. But yeah, I, I think that would give you hope for, you know, maybe being able to steal one at home and maybe play the Warriors better than the other teams at the bottom of the Western Conference would. They've had a subpar record against teams 500 and better, 13 and 27. But they've beat up on the weaker teams in the league at 26 and 13. We're going to ask you about injuries right after this. But outside of the onslaught of injuries that they've had, and they are still young, are are there any other reasons why you think they just haven't been able to beat those quality teams this season? I mean, I think, first of all, they're not getting it done at the end of games. We've seen that just twice, three times in the last week, really, with their close losses against Warriors, Spurs, and Clippers, although obviously the Clippers were were shorthanded. And then I think ultimately you look at a team that mostly brings it all every night. And of course, again, we're coming to after this shorthanded Clippers loss, which was embarrassing. But for the rest of the season, this team's done a pretty good job of putting away the teams that it needs to, you know, beating the Phoenixes, the the Sacramentos, the Minnesotas of the world. And then, yeah, of course, you know, like every team, they struggle against the top competition. To me, that kind of shows that they're bringing it mostly every night on a way that some NBA teams are not always capable of. I think that's a good point that you ended with because, I mean, if it was the reverse and they were just having these letdown games or getting overconfident, you'd definitely be concerned. Right. And maybe you'd almost you'd be concerned about their mental makeup. And ultimately, I'd be a little bit concerned if they were getting blown out to these good teams. But like I say, especially at home, they're they're so close on so many of these games that it's, it's a referee call here. It's a made or miss shot there that you, you have to feel, you know, with some experience, with some shot luck, quite frankly, you, you look at the point differential of this team and it should be a 44, 45 win team at this point and that they haven't been able to get it done in close games is, is kind of pretty typical of a young team. Yeah, it's frustrating, but not something unexpected at all by any means. But the injuries, we have to talk about the injuries. There have been so many. Dante Exum, out for the entire season. Derek Favors missed 18 games. Rudy Gobert missed about that. Alec Burks has missed well over half the season. Trey Burke as well has been sidelined. Trey uh, Burke's been healthy. He's just not playing because he's not very good. I'll just, I'll just oh, throw that out there. Did he like, get some D- DNPs just because he wasn't good? Yeah, I mean, that's that's really why he hasn't played is, is honestly he's... Li- okay, I'll just say it. He's a defensive nightmare. And so Quinn Snyder's playing Howell Neto the 23-year-old Brazilian over him. Yeah. And of course, Calvin Mack. How have they been able to overcome all these injuries? There have been so many. Yeah, I mean, you look at some key points of depth, and I wouldn't say that the Jazz's depth is good, but I, I, I think you look at how Jeff Withy, for example, stepped into the starting lineup in December when Rudy Gobert and Derek Favors were gone. Trey Lyles played pretty well as a starter, and I, I think he started 27 games this season. They've put it together and, and honestly kind of just outplayed some teams 
in terms of effort and, and hustle. And that, that part of the stretch when both Derek Favors and, and Rudy Gobert were out was a pretty easy part of their schedule. They played a lot of games at home against some pretty bad teams. And normally what you would say, you know, the, the Jazz probably should have gone if they're healthy. 12 and 6, 13 and 5 or so during that month of December. Unfortunately, they weren't. And so they went 10 and 10, 9 and 9 and 11, something like that. So, you know, they, they certainly stayed afloat without those players. They didn't take advantage of wins that maybe they would have otherwise if they were healthy. And you kind of look at, you know, basically it's it's guys stepping up in the right situations. And props to those guys for, for being able to. Howell Neto has, has been pretty surprisingly excellent all season long. Like I said, Jeff Withey, Trey Lyles, Trevor Booker, Joe Ingles has stepped in and played more minutes than, than he probably expected to. Chris Johnson's been okay as an energy guy. I mean, it's one of those things where they, they didn't exactly blow the doors off when they stayed healthy, but they, when they were injured, excuse me, but they, they stayed afloat, and that's kind of all you can ask for. And one of the guys we mentioned as being out for a long time with injury, Alec Burks, just returned Friday night against the Clippers. He played well. He played for 13 minutes, obviously limited, but he put up 11 points on four or five shooting, including three of three from three. So that's great for him. But how hard is it to reincorporate a guy like that back into your system after he's out so long? And how does that return shift the roles for the other players on the team? Yeah, I mean, he's going to be taking the minutes of Chris Johnson and Joe Ingles. So he basically has to outplay those guys. Chris Johnson, that's easy. I mean, he's an energy guy, but he's terrible from three, terrible on offense, tries on defense, but misses rotations. I mean, that's that's pretty easy. You're, you just have to beat a replacement level player, right? Joe Ingles does some nice things, but really his, his best asset is corner three-point shooting. And, and Alec Burke showed that he could do that last night. So I think it, it's going to be pretty easy in terms of getting him back into the, the flow of things especially offensively. Last night, I think Burks missed a, a couple of defensive rotations that hurt the Jazz, uh, especially in, in the first and third quarters at the end of that when he, when he was subbed in. And honestly, the Jazz didn't expect him to play that many minutes last night, but it, his lineups were effective enough that he did play at the start of that overtime and ultimately he scored you know three out of the Jazz's five points in overtime. It's going to be very nice to have him back. Clearly, he's a better player than either Joe Ingles or Chris Johnson. I think he gives the Jazz a little bit of the off-the-dribble paint penetration that they don't have without him. He's not a defensive plus. I think that's pretty clear. But when you're replacing, you know, replacement-level players, you just there's not that much that you have to do to, in order to make the roster better. And I think we saw that last night. Gordon Hayward, probably the most valuable player of the team. He does so many things well. He's so versatile and right now on a good contract, although you say he's likely going to exercise his opt-out. Do you think he still has more room to grow or is this pretty much the Gordon Hayward that we're going to get for his prime? Yeah, I mean, I, I think at about this level, this is honestly about the level he played at last season as well. So I, you know, you kind of look at a, I wouldn't say plateau, but he's kind of a leveling off as you would expect with a 25 year old player. Right. So, you know, I expect him to play at about this level. I think he will probably add some more skills, probably become a little bit better, say on the post and driving kind of mid range. He's, he's improved that aspect of his game this year, maybe get a little bit smarter defensively, but you know, the kind of improvements that players make from age 25 to 28, well, they're not like game-changing improvements from sub-level star to I don't think he's going to be a superstar. I do think he's probably one of the 30 best players in the league. I don't know if he's ever going to be a top 15 player, 
but that's just fine, right? You know, you, you still should probably max those top 30 players no matter what. And obviously the Jazz will want to keep him around when he opts out next summer. Rodney Hood this season has really come onto the scene. A lot of people are considering him, rightfully so, the steal of the draft last year. The Jazz got him at 23rd. What specific ways have the Jazz player development worked on him with to allow him to improve so much? And why do you think he was slept on for the draft? Yeah, I, I think at Duke he was a kind of, he was not really involved in the offense that much. He was he was a lot of corner shots. Clearly fell asleep on defense. I mean, wasn't involved and, and was subbed out for defense by Coach K at, at critical times in that. And, and so I think a lot of people saw him as a maybe a good outside shooter, but then didn't add a lot. You know, maybe like a, a Darrell Wright type, where you're not sure that he deserves to be more than the 23rd pick in the draft. I think what surprised people is his skill from the mid-range, and he's such a smart player. He's got kind of an old player's game where he's so good at going off of the pick and roll, getting the defender on his back, and taking advantage and reading that situation, and and taking advantage from the mid-range in, in a way that not a lot of players do in the NBA. And we're seeing that ability to score as a result. Where the Jazz's player development staff has really helped is, quite frankly, on the defensive end, again, a, a, a definite liability at the college level. And then immediately in his rookie season, he was pretty average for a rookie, which is great. I mean, actually average for an NBA player as a rookie, which is which is great and, and is about at that level now. So for him to be able to stay on the floor and defend guys is great. I mean, he's he also works so hard at it. I mean, he's, he's so skilled again on that shot. It, you'd like to see him maybe be able to get to the rim a little bit more frequently as, as one next step. He says he wants to become a defensive shutdown player. That would be the other next step. But you're right that he's he's already surged so much as a sophomore. He wasn't very healthy his rookie season, so that had a lot to do with that. But he's a long-term starter for the Utah Jazz. And at the 23rd pick, that's that's an excellent acquisition. Yeah, it definitely is. Surely the Jazz are lucky to have him. And he was one of the people that GM Dennis Lindsay drafted recently. And that guy's another person from the Spurs front office that has seemingly been successful in his tenure so far. He joined the team in 2012, did a really quick teardown where he got rid of so many big-name guys, people like Al Jefferson, Paul Millsap, C.J. Miles as well, just to name a, a handful. But it seems to me like the rebuild has gone very, very well and that the team is young. They have a lot of promising guys. They're in playoff contention again. For them, is it just as simple as getting Exum back and having all the pieces healthy moving forward? Or are there still very real things that you think that need to be done to improve their prospects in the near future? Yeah, I mean, uh, so much still depends on how good Dante Exum is. If he's the player he was his rookie season where he's, quite frankly, afraid to go into the paint, not a very good outside shooter, but a, a good defender. That's a nice NBA player, but it's not the kind of player that will get the Jazz to where they want to go in terms of you know contending for a championship. So his development is very key, and if not, the Jazz need to find a, a solution at point guard that's better than Sheldon Mack and Howell Neto. The Jazz will give every opportunity for Dante Axum to improve and, and become the player that they think he can be, but you know, young players are a gamble, and it, it may work out, it may not. So there's there's that. Also, clearly, they need more bench depth, and I, and I think that's been a problem for them this season. You look at the output of their bench lineups, whenever the Jazz have two or fewer starters on the floor, 
their effectiveness goes way down. They clearly rely on Gordon Hayward a ton on the offensive end. You know, finding a, a third wing, and obviously Alec Burks was hurt, but still you, you probably need a third and fourth wing that can can step in. And most teams do have injuries during the course of a season, so you probably would like to upgrade the fourth wing, the fourth big, that sort of thing. You'd like to see probably a, a little bit better in transition the Jazz are are the worst transition team in the league in terms of just the number of times they take advantage of those opportunities those are kind of easy points on the board that they're they're letting go but you kind of look at this roster and look at how good they've been offensively and you know I'm I'm surprised that they're an above average team given that the, the talent that they have on the floor and so you have to give Quinn Snyder a lot of credit for that then it's just about becoming an elite defense again and I, I think that's Really kind of, again, continuity, getting players healthy. Obviously, Rudy Gobert, Derek Favors gives you a fantastic core there. Being able to keep Rudy Gobert on the court in all situations would be very helpful if he can he can develop a mid-range shot or reduce foul trouble a little bit. It's been a little bit of a worry. Maybe chase smaller guys around a little bit. So, you know, they're a little these are all kind of things on the margins, I guess. You know, right. your bench guys, Rudy Gobert's improvement, Dante Exum's improvement. You know, it all kind of depends if it, that all coalesces together. I don't think they have a top 10 player on the roster right now unless Dante Axum surprises everybody, right? Mm-hmm. But if not, you can you can still put together a formidable team with above average starters at every position, and, and the Jazz are, are definitely doing that. Am I right to assume that you're happy with the job Dennis Lindsay's doing so far? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you look at the most important job that a GM does and it's drafting and he's he's nailed it so far, right? I mean, you can quibble with the Trey Burke pick and, and the trade there, but it, even in that same draft, they still got Rudy Gobert. You switch the draft position of Rudy Gobert and Trey Burke, you're, you're still pretty happy with the outcome of that. You look at Rodney Hood, that's a fantastic selection. Howell Neto, again, the surprising second round guy who's been able to contribute. Dante Axon we haven't seen yet, but obviously we'll we'll find out. And then Trey Lyles looks great so far, too. So, you know, he's he's made all the right moves, putting together a team. His plan requires patience, certainly, right? You know, he, he didn't acquire bench help this offseason despite having free agency money. But you look at a young team coming together as a unit, and it's hard to find big mistakes that he's made. I'm curious where you think Derek Favors is in his progression. It's interesting. It's already his sixth season in the league, but he is not even 25 years old. Each of the last two seasons, his statistics have pretty much remained the same, but that can also be misleading if he's developing certain skills. Yeah, I think that you kind of nailed it on the head where, you know, at 24, 25, you're not expecting great development from that point moving forward. Sure. What we have seen in the last two years is Derek Favors jump shot, and he's much more willing to take it. You'll notice that this season he's taking way more from the mid-range, and quite frankly, he's missing more of them as a result. And, you know, he's taking kind of semi-contested ones instead of just the wide open ones when he's he's in rhythm and as a result his percentages are down now you probably hope that he will start knocking those down and and maybe that's how it happens in year three of taking the jump shot so to speak he can start making enough of them to make that a real weapon rather than a, a thing that teams are kind of willing to give him right now so that's kind of the next step in his progression is making the jump shot clearly the defense is is at least good He's a great shot blocker for a power forward. He's pretty good when he's being switched out on the perimeter, especially for a guy of his size. Does a lot offensively. He's he's one of the best role men in the league. I mean, just being able to work with Shelvin Mack, 
since his acquisition has, has really helped. And, you know, Shelvin Mack's not an elite point guard by any means, but having someone who can deliver a role pass has, has been great for him. So I think he's maybe the guy who you point to most where if the team around him improves, he can really start to take advantage of the spaces in the defense. I think the turning point for the Jazz, obviously last season, was the trade of Ennis Cantor in how it allowed Rudy Gobert to become the starting center, really come onto the scene. And you saw after that trade last season, the Jazz became a historically great defense in terms of defensive rating. This season, as you alluded to earlier, the Jazz as a whole are seventh in defensive efficiency. But since March 1st, they're ranked second. And that's largely because of Gobert's performance. Again, the opponent field goal percentage at the rim is absurdly low for him when he's on the court. What changed since March for the Jazz, for Gobert, and the defense? Um, I, I think a couple things. First, they stopped playing Trey Burke with the acquisition of Shelvin Mack, and that, that helped a lot. Like I said, Trey's a, a little bit of a nightmare defensively, gets cut up on screens, and then, you know, you're playing five on four, and it's, it's tough. So that, that's part of it. It took a little bit when Derek Favors and Rudy Gobert came back for the Jazz, for those guys to kind of remember how to play together a little bit and to try to figure out their roles. I think a little bit of it is honestly schedule difficulty. They've played some easier opponents in March and April than they did in, in January and February, maybe more home games. But to me, it's, it's that's kind of the fluctuation that you would normally expect to see during the course of a season. I think ultimately the biggest leap, you know, why they ended the last year so great and this season are... are quote-unquote, only in seventh, is Dante Exum. And I think people kind of underestimated how much he was able to shut down opposing point guards as a rookie with his tremendous length for that position. The Jazz still don't have that. You know, they have a stronger point guard in Shelvin Mack, but it'll be really nice to have him back next season and kind of be able to use his length to stop pick and rolls, to stop dribble penetration, and then still have Rudy Gobert and Derek Favors beyond that is, is going to be really helpful. And I think those of us who aren't that familiar with the Jazz, when we watch Jazz games, we always see Coach Snyder on the sidelines. He's somehow always scowling. Can you tell us a little bit more about him and maybe why he's so scary looking? (laughs) I I don't think he can control how scary looking he is. Like, especially last season when when he wanted to get into guys and, and it was especially, you know, Ennis Cantor would do the wrong thing on defense as Ennis Cantor will and, and, so he had to have those conversations, and and those are those are scary conversations. He's he's, he's kind of a scary looking dude, is is really what it comes down to. And I, I don't know that he hates that, but you know, in person he's nice. He's uh, just our one on one conversations I really respect and enjoy. And he's he's such a smart coach. He's incredible for his ability to look at process rather than results, and especially you know with referee calls, he's rarely complains to the refs. He is so forward-looking in terms of, you know, coaching the next player rather than the last one. He's a fantastic coach, quite frankly. And and I think you're seeing that on, uh, again, the offensive and defensive end. He, yeah, he's he's scary. and, and <laughs> But as the team's improved, he's needed to, to be less so, I suppose. The Butler boys are back together again now with Shelvin Mack joining Gordon Hayward. And Mack has found a niche on this roster. He's getting big minutes. I want to give you an opportunity right now to rave a little bit more about Shelvin Mack. Yeah, he's been good. I mean, look, he's not a amazing point guard. And I think his acquisition and, and immediate just taking of the starting job in 30, 35 minutes a night 
says a lot about the Jazz's point guard rotation before that. But that being said, he's capable. I mean, he's he's got a very good mid-range floater game that can burn defenses when they drop off to the Jazz's bigs on the pick and roll. That's really helped. He's much better at finding and, and assisting guys than either of the Jazz's two point guards before because he is that offensive threat and is taking the right kind of shots within the offense. He's, like I said, a big point guard, so he can defend guys, in, you know, bigger point guards if they go to the post or try to play physical in a way that Howell, Neto, and Trey Burke really couldn't. And then, ultimately, he's he's been a good shooter from outside, too. I think he's shooting 39% since he came over um, in, in the trade. So that certainly wasn't his forte as, as an Atlanta Hawk, but he's been good in the last couple of months for the Utah Jazz. So, again, it, that's kind of indicative of how much the Jazz needed a point guard, but he's he's been solid, and, and you kind of look next season, and he may be the starter next season, depending on how Dante starts to recover from this ACL tear. Yeah, he's shooting 37.5 or about percent from three-point range. Also, he's a good rebounder for that position, yeah. too. Yeah, absolutely, and that's something that the Jazz were getting nothing from from either Neto or Burke before, so uh, yeah. that, that's been helpful. It's exciting to see him get more time and prove his worth. He was starting to get forgotten about in Atlanta. Now moving to Trey Lyles, you mentioned him a little bit earlier. And as the season's progressed, he's shown some flashes. He's had some particularly really big games over the last month or so. What are you seeing in him in his early game right now? Yeah, I'm I'm shocked at how skilled he is. I don't know that I've seen a big that the that skilled as a rookie certainly not in a jazz uniform i mean i i can't think of one ever just because of his ability to shoot from three from the outside i mean in college i think he was like a 13 percent three-point shooter and now he's shooting like what 38 percent. i think you've got the numbers in front of you but i mean so that that part of it's great he's also got a great feel for the game where he's if teams do try to prevent the three-point shot then he's pump fake and driving to the rim He's got a nice floater for a 6'10 guy. That's been nice. He, he can move and, and he's quick and kind of agile. And then he finds guys too in terms of if the whole defense collapses and he can make that right pass. He can he can dribble the ball in transition. His defense isn't there, just to be clear. I mean, that's that's kind of the next step is whether or not he can stay on the floor defensively because right now he's, he's making a lot of rookie mistakes. But offensively, he is brilliant i think flashes of brilliance is the right way to put it he's i mean uh, just has it seems like the whole package in terms of what you'd want from a 610 guy it's it's really impressive to see and he's kind of like perfect match too right for Derek favors and rudy gobert like if you've got two defensive minded guys who are big but kind of interior players then to have a, a third big that's trey lyles who can play from the outside primarily and, and give you the option to go four out one in that's that's great so in terms of a roster fit you couldn't ask for anything better yeah as you said Lyles currently shooting just under 38 percent from three he's really coming come on as a stretch four that they can go to at times with his size and a good compliment to Gobert and favors like you said Next season, the D-League affiliate for the Jazz, the Idaho Stampede, is going to be relocating to Salt Lake City, becoming the Stars. That's continuing the trend of a lot of teams around the league, keeping their D-League affiliate close, having a very close relationship with them. Especially since you said that one of the biggest needs for the Jazz is filling out their bench. Do you think there's going to be a lot of looking to the D-League team for that in the future of the franchise? Yeah, I mean, obviously you don't want to 
rely on D League players to fill out your bench because you're you know you're probably getting mostly D League players that are not going to be that impactful on the NBA level. But what you're trying to do is develop both develop young guys and maybe get that diamond in the rough, the the Danny Green, so to speak, in your program. And I think moving the the team to Salt Lake City helps in a couple of ways. You kind of look at the Oklahoma City Blue as as the model here and, and having an NBA and D-League team in the same city. And you've seen Josh Hustis just move up and down so frequently. I think he, it's been 30 times that he's been assigned and recalled this season. And you look at, say, Tibor Place on the Utah Jazz, who you know is kind of in a similar situation where the Jazz just want to get him playing time. And they've only assigned and recalled him 10 times because, you know, the, of the travel between Salt Lake City and Boise and, and having that kind of limit some things you can't have him practice with the jazz and then go play in Boise that next night it just doesn't work time-wise if, if the jazz are practicing in the afternoon so whereas the Oklahoma City Thunder and Blue can do that with Houston and, and Mitch McGarry and, and whoever else they want to so you kind of look at some small opportunities there that'll really help rehab assignments is another thing I mean when Alec Burks was coming back for injury the jazz had were doing kind of some three-on-three games right so Ideally, you'd want him to have some five-on-five competition before playing in the NBA just to see how he could do. But when you have an NBA roster, you don't want to worry about hurting your guys if it, who, are, who are healthy. So the Jazz actually had their coaching staff come and play in that three-on-three game for Alec Burks. If you have your D-League team in town, you can have him play against the D-League guys, right? And and ultimately, that's, that's going to be a lot better for, for Alec and, and for those guys as well. So... You know, I think it's better from a business perspective, too. The team wasn't that successful in Boise. Adds 24 home dates for me as a basketball fan. I'm I'm a fan of the move. And to end on a lower note, it came out last week that Jerry Sloan was just diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. Obviously, he was the head coach for so long under the Stockton Malone years. He's third in NBA history in career wins. Since leaving as head coach, he's still stayed around the team and been involved in other capacity as well. Can you just speak about Jerry Sloan's legacy with the Utah Jazz? Yeah, he was at the game last night. He's at most Jazz games and, you know, got a standing ovation from the fans last night, which is great. Obviously, you you know the, the legacy of, of toughness and grit and work ethic that, that he brought to the franchise. And, and really, it's what we think of when we think of Utah Jazz basketball was solely defined by him, and, and that culture still remains. And that's a, a huge credit to who Jerry Sloan is and who he stands for. I wrote a piece for KSL.com this week, actually just yesterday, about I think he's a little bit underrated as a X's and O's guy as well. You look at his success, especially offensively. You know, you, you look at like toughness and defenses and grit, so to speak, as as defensive characteristics. But he was kind of an offensive mastermind. And in that Stockton and Malone era teams, they were first in the league, and and you can make a case that they're a top three offensive team of all time. With you know, sure they had John Stockton and Carl Malone, so that's that's a great base. But you, you're also starting Brian Russell and Adam Keith guys were kind of limited offensively and he was able to make that system work at an elite level that's pretty impressive you look at after Stockton and Malone retired he he took a team that had Andre Kirilenko and then only Carlos Arroyo, Raja Bell, Greg Ostertag and Jaron Collins were the top five minutes guys for that team and they won 42 games and nearly made a playoff berth were an average offensive team that's incredible wow 
And then, right, I mean, those players are not good players. And <laughs> he made it work, which is, which is, I mean, he, he absolutely should have been coach of the year that year. Hubie Brown won it. And then you look at the Darren Williams, Carlos Boozer teams. And I think teams, people kind of think that that was in the same mold as Stockton and, and Malone because, you know, you've got a point guard, you've got a power forward. But just the, the offensive system was wildly different. It wasn't as pick and roll based. It was a lot of flex motion. And again, like Jerry Sloan made Ronnie Brewer work as a starting NBA shooting guard because he used him in the right sort of way. So I think sometimes we underestimate that team, by the way, was also first in the league in offensive rating in the era of Kobe Bryant, LeBron James, so on and so forth. So I think we underestimate his offensive legacy a little bit. Obviously, his legacy as a worker and as a grinder still stays with the Utah Jazz franchise and best wishes to to him and his family. Well said, Andy. Thank you so much for joining us today. Good luck to the Jazz as the season closes. Hey, thank you guys. 